Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power A cold December day. A mystery unfolds. 39-year-old Julie Kroll stumbles away from a minor car accident, leaving behind her 8-year-old daughter and an open container of alcohol. As darkness descends, she disappears. This is the opening of Lipstick and Liquor, a documentary which explores the rise of alcoholism amongst women. As Julie's story unfolds, the film introduces us to four women who tell their recovery stories. Lipstick and Liquor seeks to shake off the stigma associated with women alcoholics and to provide understanding and insight into the effort to stay sober. You're listening to The Bubble Hour, where, like this film, real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Catherine, and I'm here tonight with my co-host, Ellie. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Catherine. Jean is listening along and live tweeting the discussion, and our sweet Amanda has the night off. And tonight, we're thrilled to have the director of Lipstick and Liquor, Lori Butterfield, as our special guest. Lori is an Emmy Award-winning producer, director, and writer, whose credits include television programming for National Geographic, Discovery, Animal Planet, Travel Channel, and Discovery Science Channel. Lori has been working in production for more than 20 years traveling to 50 countries on six continents. Lori spent a combined decade working at National Geographic and Discovery Networks with prior experience at Australia's Seven Network and the news operations of CNN and Headline News. Lori is currently serving as Senior Vice President, Creative Content and Development at Homefront Communications, a full-service communications firm with expertise in digital media, Interactive web services, content, and broadcast. Lori Butterfield, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm a little intimidated because I feel like we're this we're this low tech podcast, you know, just fully staffed by volunteers. And and I just read your bio and said, oh my gosh, we have a real professional here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not at all. And you you both sound fantastic, let me tell you. Maybe oh, it's my you. cold. It's 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 giving me this this little radio voice that's happening. Um but so happy to to have you here and, and talk about the film. So, why don't why don't we start by tell us about the the lead up to Lipstick and Liquor. You are not a person in recovery yourself. So, what drew you to the story? 
Yeah, it's been such a journey for me, and it started about five years ago now. I had really been struck by the story that happened in the summer of 2009 with a woman named Diane Schuler. She had been driving the wrong way on the Taconic Parkway up in New York. I don't know if some of your listeners remember this story, but she um, was going the wrong way and was under the influence. She hit a SUV head-on. Eight people in her van died, including her, her children and uh, all the people in the car that she struck. And what was amazing about that story at the time was that her husband and I think it was even her uh, sister or sister-in-law were in such denial about Diane's problem that they were out, you know, giving press conferences saying, you know, she was not an alcoholic, she didn't have a problem, and yet they had found an open container of vodka, you know, at the crash scene. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, this, how could this be? You know, how could anyone be in a family and their husband not know they had a problem? Can you imagine I was saying that? Uh, but it really, <laughs> it really took me by surprise, and it just was one of those stories that st- stuck with me. Well, about four months later, I had been working for the uh, for doing a, a project with the Ad Council, and it was for Buzz Driving. And I had met a woman named Emily Sadler, who I absolutely adore, and we uh, struck up a friendship and talking about you know, uh, drunk driving and all. And I saw this statistic while I was doing this project that said that DUI arrests for women had gone up by 30% in the last decade, whereas DUI arrests for men had gone actually down. So now I'm beginning to connect the dots here. You know, the Diane Schuler story, uh, this uh, scenario with women drinking and driving more, and something had really struck in me that, Something else was going on in society, you know, that there, were, there were, were definitely these trends happening. And then, lo and behold, that Christmas, I had been home, and I was reading the Washington Post, and this story came out about Julie Kroll, and, you know, that she had been lost for 13 days. She had wandered away from her car, open container of alcohol, her 8-year-old daughter, And at that moment that I had been reading this article, it was very nondescript. It was in, like, the metro section. There was no picture of Julie. But what struck me in this article was the fact that when she'd wandered away and gotten lost and her family had desperately tried to find her, what had happened in that ensuing 13 days was that the police had turned her into a criminal. And the, the, the horrendous stigma that had happened because she had wandered away from her car in obvious fright, in obvious oblivion, but according to the police, you know, she was fleeing the scene, and, you know, in their mind, she had done something terribly, terribly wrong, uh, that, you know, there was really no empathy there or compassion And the story was taking on such a negative life of its own, which we can get into, um, you know, throughout the hour here. But I really felt compelled to do something. And so out of all of that, this film really was born in my heart because it was something that was not an assignment given to me. It was was really uh, something that I felt so compelled to do. And so really on my own, uh, for the next three years, this became an independent film. 
Wow. So, mm. you know, I'm I'm wondering, and, and I'll give you a little background, too, about how I watched this film for the second time in preparation mm. for the show. I saw it last year, but then in preparation for the show, I invited some women from my recovery community over and said, let's watch this movie. And we had a range of uh, sober time from somebody who's actually counting days to somebody with over 10 years. So we had these really interesting reactions. And one of the questions that came up was, who was your intended audience? So, you know, this this story is impacting you, and, and I'm just wondering, were you thinking it was for alcoholics, educators, families? Like, yeah, that that is a great of- question. Because Julie's story is such a cautionary tale, uh, you know, I've had people come up to me and say to me, you know, that could have been me, or, um, you know, I know somebody who that happened to, very similar circumstance. I really wanted it to kind of wake up and shake up a lot of people, and men and women, I must say. But I wanted to, I wanted to grab an audience that... Um, might know somebody or or maybe even not know the extent of the problem, but maybe somewhere in the storyline, Julie's story, but also in the other four women who are, you know, featured in Lipstick and Liquor, find something in themselves or find something mm. in their, their friend or their sister or their colleague and say, wow, I know someone like this. I, I wanted to, like I said, wake them up and shake them up. But I also wanted to reinforce for women in recovery, uh, you know, how much of an inspiration they are to everyone, to shed that stigma, to feel really proud, and to be able to as I said, in you know, spark a new dialogue about all of this because I have to be honest, somebody like me who's not in recovery, in the making of this film, what struck me so much was the fact that I felt like I was on the other side of a of a shower curtain where I could barely see in into the world of recovery. There was a lot of times when I was meeting with people and talking with various people there was a sense there that because I wasn't in recovery, somehow I didn't know. And I know where all of that has come from, and I know that some of it is, you know, fear of judgment and all of that, but I think sometimes fear of judgment is actually getting in the way of having this conversation on both sides of it. And so I really wanted this film to empower more women to speak up, women in recovery, but women who aren't in recovery to be able to have a language to talk to somebody that they love. Uh, Because I have to say that's been a great gift in making this film, is I've heard from so many women who have said to me, you know what, Lori, after I watched that film, it allowed me to have a conversation with my daughter, or, or it gave me what I needed to, to you know, reach out and, and tell my friend how much they meant to me and how much I, I really thought that their drinking was getting out of hand. You know, it's become this wonderful portal to have this conversation. That's a fantastic point, and I'm really glad that that you bring that up. And I'm, I'm, this is Ellie. I'm, I'm personally struck by how the, the catalyst behind your desire to ultimately um, create this film came from the Diane Schuler incident because that was really kind of a shot heard around the world. Um, and I was blogging back then and fairly new to recovery, and I had a, a very similar reaction both to, although I did understand on a more personal level how somebody in a family could either be in such profound denial 
and or not even know the extent of somebody's problem. I, I understood that a little bit better. What really struck me was that, um, you know, sort of on a, on a widespread basis, I mean, this, there were legitimate news outlets that were theorizing that no mother would ever drive in a car drunk with her children, so when she stopped at McDonald's that morning, they must have spiked her coffee. I mean, outrageous sort of grassy knoll theories to avoid the hard reality that moms are alcoholics too. And to me, it really drove home the point that the stigma of being branded an alcoholic is worse than almost anything else in their mind. You know, let her be crazy, let her be mentally unstable or anything other than an alcoholic. And I I was incensed when this happened because I thought there's so many women and mothers out there struggling and this just drives them all deeper into the shadows. You know, how do you begin to have that conversation to ask for help, to turn to a friend and say, I think I'm struggling with drinking? Um, so that to get the dialogue on the table in a in a productive way, in a solution-oriented way. And I'm particularly moved by the testimony of Julie's husband in all of this as a person in recovery to kind of give people the, the opportunity to have that conversation because the there's so much negative press around the, the awful consequences of drinking and driving. And there's a friend of mine who says, you know, the Lindsay Lohans of the world have been speaking for alcoholics for a long time. And we need more publicity out there about the fact that recovery is possible if you have the courage to ask for it. Oh, you are so right. And I will tell you that I, too, was so moved by Jerry. Jerry is such an, a hero in this film, and he's such a hero in real life. Uh, but one of the things that I just adored about that story, and again, I go back to um, this this lightning moment that had happened in my mind and in my heart when I read that article saying, I have to do this story. And again, not ever having met Julie and never having met Jerry, this was a real love story. And, you know, that Jerry was so committed to Julie. He was so committed to her getting better and so supportive. And yet like many spouses, he really struggled, you know, because as he says in the film, there were two Julies. There was Julie who drank and Julie who didn't drink. And, you mm-hmm. know, when when she had the drink in her, she was a different person. And I know we, we all know that. We've, we've seen that before. Uh, and so, you know, what I was always so taken aback by with Jerry is, you know, here was a guy, as you mentioned, who was also in recovery for himself himself for, for many years. And, you know, he said when he first fell in love with Julie, he didn't think that she had a problem. And uh, it wasn't until a few years in. And, you would, and he said, you know, I should, of all people, I should have my radar up. And so I think one of the things that I have really learned in the making of this film is uh, what people don't tend to understand is it's a progressive disease. And I certainly didn't understand that. Um, You know, I often tell people that, you know, women who really understand that journey of recovery, well, I've had a journey of my own with making this film. And, you know, if um, anyone was judging, there was a part of me who judged, quite honestly. You know, I I remember Mm -hmm. thinking, you know, what woman would ever get behind the wheel? Thinking that same thing. Uh, And Dr. Anita Gaudia-Smith, who is just a fantastic uh, therapist and author and was a, a very powerful voice in the film. You know, she points out, look, mothers do not 
mean to get behind the wheel and drive with their children in the car. You know, mothers will lay down in the road before they will um, put their children in harm's way. But what happens when somebody is drinking is they don't think they're as out of control. So what goes through their mind is, I can handle this, I can get in the car. And, you know, I think she brings up a really, really good point by that. So so for me, um, you know, having that understanding that some people may start out drinking a little bit, and, and uh, the big message for me with all of this was, this thing that's going on in society today, everywhere, in towns and mm-hmm. cities, where women come home from work and they want to take the edge off and it's the end of the day and maybe they're, you know, the work has been stressful, the drive home's been stressful, or they've been home all day with the kids and now it's time to have that glass of wine. That's your treat. But what happens is that treat turns maybe from one to two to three glasses. And, you know, I think someone like back to Jerry, who might have seen Julie as only a, um, a somebody who drank occasionally to somebody who, you know, drank more and more. And he said she was a binge drinker, not a maintenance drinker. And I think mm-hmm. we we know the difference there. Well, definitely. And, you know, one thing that strikes me about Julie's drinking, <clears throat> what I've read about Diane Schuler's uh, story, and also the four women who are profiled in the film, is that they share so many characteristics of that I have as an alcoholic and characteristics of their drinking. So the the idea of having to be perfect. So I think you know somebody in the movie says Julie had this desire to be the perfect daughter and friend, never feeling good enough. Emily talks about, and we we can get into the stories of all these women, but talking about holding feelings in and. Haley saying, I would drink to feel okay, to feel normal. I mean, we hear these statements on the show every week, and these are things that we've all said ourselves. And, you know, the the hiding of the drinking, the not realizing how out of control you are, and even I can say for myself that when I start drinking, I cannot stop. I cannot – I have no off switch – I cannot stop. It doesn't matter what the consequences are. I don't care. It's and I'm I'm hyper responsible in real life. You know, in my sober life, I'm a hyper responsible person. So that's a really challenging thing to explain, but I was this is why the sharing of stories of people in recovery is always so important, I think, because we, we see ourselves and one thing that makes me so sad about Diane Schuler's story, aside from the obvious fact of people losing their lives, is that even in death, her desperation seems to me desperation of like call a cry for help was is still she's still kind of silenced by certain her her husband and certain people in her family who say we want to disinter her body to retest it to make sure to, because we're going to prove that there's no way she was an alcoholic. So even in her final act, she's silenced and her problem is silenced. I I, I find that really devastating. 
Oh, that is such a good point. You are absolutely right. But, you know, what you were just talking about uh, previously, about that perfectionism, I think so many women go through that, and you are so right. That may be the big difference between, you know, somebody with a, the, a problem drinking, as you say, you know, there. I, I know so many women who will say that same thing. You know, I have one, two, and I can't stop. And, you know, I was always the opposite. I was the girl who I just could never hold my alcohol. <laughs> I was the one who threw up, you know. It did, just did not stay in my body. And, you know, I remember even in college when I was I would be partying, you know what a horrible shame that was the next day that that I would had thrown up somewhere or I was hugging the the porcelain god at the end of the night. But now I realize, wow, thank God I have that biology. You know that so I really get that now. I get that there's like a chemical difference there. But underneath all of that are women nowadays, all of us going through very very similar things especially that uh, perfection uh, issue or that mm-hmm. wanting to show the world that you have everything under control, you know, down to your weight and, you know, the fact that you don't have any gray hair or that your nails look good or, or that you have a fabulous job or you've got beautiful children or a wonderful marriage or you don't. or It's just I think there is so much pressure on women, but I think – so much of the pressure, quite frankly, is absolutely of our own making. Yeah, I mean, Dr. Brené Brown says that shame cuts across gender lines where men, by and large, have a fear of being seen as weak, and women, by and large, have a fear of being seen as imperfect. So that hmm. that's not alcoholic women or addicted women in addiction. That's all women that she, in her research so it just you know i happen to have a switch that gets flipped in me that you don't have in in terms of using alcohol but you know and we've had uh ann dowsett johnson on the show she's a journalist in canada who wrote an amazing book that if you haven't read it you'd be really interested in called drink i know it excellent yeah women's relationship with alcohol and she was on the show about two years ago talking about it and the research that she did and even some of the really um, cloying kind of names now, for you know, Mommy's Little Helper and Mommy Juice and all this, you know, cutesy stuff for wine. And I don't know about anybody else, but I sure thought that I deserved it because I was working so hard and, and that did become, it was very easy for me to justify um, my drinking. Because of oh, my need absolutely. to be perfect, and I, I also think we we all have to realize too how much alcohol is in our lives every day in ways in which, quite frankly, it wasn't even you know twenty thirty years ago. Yes, there's always been alcohol in you know in America and. Uh, as you had mentioned at the beginning of the show, I've done a lot of traveling. So in Anglo societies, in, in the U.K., in Australia, you know, heavy, heavy drinking, and the women are rising and drinking, you know, in parity to men. So this has been going on, but nowadays it seems like you start with your your brunches, you know, brunch has become a big time to drink and then yeah. there's also you know the happy hours i mean happy hours have gotten 
more and more insane. I remember being in New York City about a year ago and could not believe the supersizing of the drinks now that people are drinking at happy hours. You know, that's the other thing. You know, these glasses have gotten so much bigger and and people don't realize how much they're drinking. So it it isn't even a matter of coming home and, and having that glass of wine, which you're absolutely right, you deserve. But, you know, every function... Every dinner party, every weekend barbecue, it's just everywhere. Yes, definitely. I I have to say, too, that, you know, your film, like many, you know, news or, you know, any sort of media depiction of women alcoholics always shows these, like, glittery glasses of wine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I always think, like, Oh my God! Like, thank goodness I went to a recovery meeting today because otherwise I could get really triggered by watching all of these, you know, delicious rosés and cabernets get poured. You know, it's, it's funny true. that you say that. I, I really, um, I'll be honest. I struggled with that because, and I, and in the making of this film, I really made it a group filmmaking experience because I knew that I didn't have the experience of recovery and I was extremely humble about that. And so I checked in with everybody constantly. Was I doing the right thing? Was I doing the wrong thing? Um, and one of the one of the issues that came up was exactly what you were saying about those glasses. And, you know, I had a couple of people say, Lori, you know, you don't understand. For an alcoholic, you know, you if you put those up, you're going to trigger. But then I had a huge chorus of other folks saying, no, do that. Put that up. People need to see what the yeah. alcoholic sees, that it yes. is yes. to see. I had I had a, um, a, a I think it was Emily actually who was saying you know alcohol at a certain point became my lover my boyfriend my you know my yeah. my best friend my everything and <clears throat> people need to understand that that glittery glittery glass of alcohol looks that inviting to them and uh-huh. you know the other thing that I also struggled with when I met Emily and Jody and Haley and we should absolutely get into their stories and Mary uh, and even Julie again who I didn't know what uh, you know a group of stunningly attractive articulate amazing women I mean I have to say these women I have such undying love and respect for and but I have had a lot of people say, why did you pick these absolutely gorgeous women? And it was, I, and I said, well, look, I, I didn't, I didn't we set out like to that do that. We look like that too, right, Ellie? <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yes, that's right. Because I know there's a stereotype of the alcoholic with the puffy yeah. eyes and, you know, the or the slutty bar fly, right? I mean, we all know this. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I want it, I want people, first of all, I went to a very specific demographic, we should say, and because, look, a lot of attention is focused on the college-age young girl who's drinking, and even the early 20-something girl who's drinking. But there is this age group, 35 to 55, where alcohol-related deaths, third leading cause of preventable death, it's this 
time of life where the women, in my opinion, have the most pressure on them. They've got mm-hmm. aging parents. They've got children. They've got financial issues. They may have relationship issues, um, divorces, breakups. I mean, you know, all kinds of things, never mind the Great Recession that recently hit everybody. So this group of women I really wanted to go after because I felt like there wasn't a voice for those women. Then I wanted to go to the women that we weren't really paying attention to, and that's the women in the suburbs. Um, it, and that's why it's, the subtitle is The Secret Lives of, uh, you know, Secrets in the Suburbs, because I feel like this is kind of a silent group, and a group, by the way, that's getting a pass at alcohol. The group that goes to book club, and I can't tell you how mm. many women have come up to me and said to me, yeah. oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've got two women in my book club. We drive them to book club because we know they're drinking. Okay, you know they're drinking. You're driving them to book club, but no one's having a conversation with them about this? Mm-hmm, exactly. So that's it's yeah. such a good point. I I definitely want to get into the that latter piece of it when we talk about stigma. But why don't you, tell us a little bit about the four women whose recovery stories are profiled? You, you've talked a little bit about how you chose them, but I'm also curious what piece of your essential message did each of them deliver for you? Yes, well, thank you for that. Well, first of all, I was really trying to find, just like you were mentioning about your um, screening that you did, you brought in some women of varying stages of recovery. So I sort of did the same thing. I had Emily, who was um, three years sober, and Haley, who was two years sober, and then um, uh, Jody was actually, at that time, I believe, 23 years sober. And Mary mm-hmm. had been 10 years sober and then had a relapse. So these women were all representing, in my mind, the sort of different journey and where you're at emotionally in your recovery. At least this is, again, what I've learned and what these women have taught me. Mm-hmm. So um, it was fantastic to to sort of see this all play out in the women's lives. And in, in many ways, they became sort of a composite. And, and that's what I, what I find why the film has worked for so many people, because each of these women are bringing something. I mean, in the case of Emily, her story, she had, uh, had gotten a second DUI, and she lost her license. And so for a lot of women, that's a, a journey that, a lot of women can relate to, you know, sort of when that wake-up call kind of jogs you and you say, wow, I've, I've got to get sober. She knew she was facing, if something had happened again, you know, a far worse scenario of jail time uh, and all. So, you know, she her recovery was one where it was very, very tough um, for her. She had to go two years without a car and, you know, having to bum rides and, take care of her two boys she was a single mom and she journaled through her recovery and i'm sure that you've you know talked about that and touched upon that a lot and how empowering and and wonderful that can be and and then she started a a blog and i don't know if many of your listeners uh know of her her blog is emilyism.com and she's got a great following and has just been a terrific source of inspiration and so you know for for me emily's story was 
was one of somebody who really um, reached out at the time when she needed to to the recovery community and used that. And she, interestingly enough, you you brought this up before um, that I found really fascinating in my research and in my uh, making of this film is she brought up that very point that you've brought up, which it is almost there's less stigma about mental illness. There's less stigma about going to a hospital for mental illness than there is for alcoholism. Mm-hmm. I was very I grateful that, that you included Mary's story as well that with somebody with a relapse because I've come back from a relapse after a pretty good chunk of sobriety. Um, and also I've, I'm a single mom now and I've lost my license. And I, I think you did a very good job of touching upon, you know, the different different levels that people are different kinds of consequences that people have and also that you don't have to have a DUI and go to jail to want to get sober but that does happen and I, I loved how in Emily's story too you got we got to know her and we you know she's so attractive and smiley and grounded and articulate and it was almost later on that she told talked about how she had served time in jail and the story sort of evolved over the course of the film and, you know, even as somebody in recovery, I'm always shocked to see this really put-together, intelligent, creative, smart, funny woman tell this horrific story of what she's been through because of her alcoholism. And, you know, they, they really are just like us. They feel exactly like everybody else does, whether they're alcoholic or not. And so it was kind of disarming to the stigma to to, to view these women, and they do look so attractive, and they do, they're do they so articulate and put-together. Um, but then then you you understand that there you know that is what an alcoholic looks like too there's no yeah, it, it takes away that image that everybody has in their head and because they're so attractive also it's it's um you know i i don't know i think that when you say the word alcoholic to anybody there's there's a visual that pops into everybody's head about what that's supposed to look like and they're just about the polar opposite of that and they also i loved hearing women that you know from a just a purely superficial standpoint you could look at them and think wow they've really got it together look at their beautiful home and their gorgeous clothes and they're so pretty and their life must be so perfect because that's what we do we compare and then hear them talk about their feelings in such a vulnerable honest way and think wow we really it's that me too connection we all have those right. feelings and it's when we share that experience that we can heal together so um, you know, it's it's impossible not to have those first responses to how people appear, but then to hear the vulnerability and the courage within their journey was very powerful. Oh yeah, even the um, Haley's story, which was also another one. Uh, Haley had been a model and a very successful model, and you know we run through a montage of her modeling photos, and I mean, strikingly beautiful woman, and there very, she is. Yeah. Saying when I was young, I didn't feel attractive. My mother pushed me into modeling, and you know, and I always felt like there was something ugly inside. And Jody, who is another just absolutely beautiful woman, she said, you know, I always there was something wrong as a young child. You know, I didn't feel mm-hmm. right. I didn't feel like I fit in, and some of that was because of my alcoholic father and my disruptive family and i think you know the seeds are sown in very you know very early in life with that not feeling right and not feeling um you know secure and safe and some of that really bleeds into um the the self-esteem issue Mm, definitely Definitely. oh absolutely Mm -hmm. 
And I have I have a little shout out from our co-host Jean, who's on the line tweeting, but a couple of things that her reactions that she wanted to share with you about a couple of the guests was she said that this week she was having a bit of a challenging time. She had some dis- discouraging um, just setbacks with people in her recovery community, and she was just feeling a bit low and watched the film in preparation for this show, and she mm-hmm. said all of the stories, but in particular Mary's story, really buoyed her and made her feel and just reminded her why she was in this journey. And then she just made a note that so Jean is a blogger at uh, unpickled.com, and she's got something like 650,000 readers, and you know she's she's been telling the story of her recovery journey. And she said that Emily over at Emilyism was an early influencer for her. So we actually just love that this modern technology of social media and everything can really connect people and get hopefully get people into recovery maybe sooner than than some of those um before some of those really tough uh consequences come to pass. So just you a are thanks so right. from, from Jean there. Oh, well, that's wonderful. No, I really appreciate hearing that. And, you know, speaking of Mary, Mary and I have become and have stayed very, very dear friends. Boy, another amazingly heroic person in that film, uh, the way she was the one who really put together the search parties to get out and try and find Julie. You know, she went to the local politicians to try and get the police to put out a search. I mean, she really stopped at nothing uh, to find out what had happened to her friend. And and Mary is, she is such a phenomenal source of inspiration for me to this day. She, she's just so full of love and so full of light. And, and her own story is really amazing in the film uh, because I, I know, again, I, I don't have this personal journey, but I know from talking to her that when that relapse happened for her, the, the double whammy shame of having held yourself up and having so many people celebrate and applaud you for this long-term recovery that you've had, and here you are, this pillar of the community, and then to try and hide that secret shame the way that she did, all the way until in Mary's story, as you know, she was working at a, in a medical office, and um, she was working in a dental office, actually. And, you know, for Mary, what had happened was, and this is, again, very common from what I understand, she had gotten in a car accident, and no doctor had said to her, listen, do you have any you know, addiction issues or you have any problems with drugs and alcohol? And the doctor just put her on Vicodin. And, of course, mm-hmm. you know, Mary will say, look, it was my responsibility. I should have also said to the doctor, um, look, I, I can't, you know, I've got to be careful with this. But... At the time, she thought she could handle it. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. after she was like, oh, I can handle this. And then, you know, kind of like that buzz. And then next thing she knew, the Vicodin, you know, then we were going to start with the alcohol again. And so there she was at the dentist's office having run out of a prescription. And in her her mind, her thinking, as she likes to say, uh, you know, here she is. She's writing a prescription and then Mm -hmm. getting arrested for prescription fraud. And, And again, another amazing beautiful 
put together woman that in my life I would have never have imagined uh, that she would have done that. Uh, and yet, you know, she said, boy, that's the thing that saved my life. Mm-hmm. And what I love I was very struck by that. Yeah. Really, what I loved about her story was how when that all went down, first of all, the the dentist didn't press charges. Her neighbors rallied around her. Her children, who are phenomenal, absolutely love her too, uh, beautiful children. You know, everybody surrounded her and supported her and and to me that was such a huge lesson to see with these women how important and I know you all know this in recovery how important it is to have people cheering you on supporting you and not judging you and having compassion Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's very true I thought her story also spoke to the um you know that the the insanity of the disease. I mean, it goes back to Diane Schuler and mm-hmm. Julie wandering away from her car and someone like Mary writing prescriptions. I mean, these, the symptoms of addiction are behavioral, and which is why they're so confounding. You know, you're, what you're seeing is a symptom of a disease. Mary herself wouldn't do things like that. This is the way, it's a, it's a brain disease. It's the, the way that we respond. And I think it can be so frustrating to loved ones because they see the behavior and can't understand it, but it's it's not not logical. It's a it's a direct result of of the way our brains work when we're in active addiction. Well, that's so right. I, and I that's definitely. Where, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Lori. I was going to say that's where I think the rubber really meets the road on uh, the stigma and on the. Of the judgment because you know Emily says in the film she says look you know people have diabetes and they're not ashamed people have cancer and they're not ashamed you know why can't we have an addiction and not be ashamed but it is precisely that behavioral thing and what I spoke about about that shower curtain that when you're on the outside looking in if we're not having this conversation and we're not talking enough about this and particularly talking enough coming out into recovery uh, and, and, and talking about the behaviors and talking about what, what it's done and, and talking about it in an honest way, then I think we can't have a real dialogue around it and really shed the judgment. Because, uh, you know, again, I know prior to me taking on this film, you know, I would have said, going back to that idea of, like, what mother would drive in a car? I would never drive in a car with my daughter drinking. You know, I, I, I know I, I thought those thoughts, and now I understand it. And now when I hear a story uh, or, or I see one on the news, you know, there's nothing in my heart but unbelievable compassion. It's a, yeah, well, it's, a sick, I, it's a sick person, not a, but not a bad person. Absolutely, and, absolutely. And I have to say that was hard for me to 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 accept. You know, I I drank alcoholically for 15 years. <clears throat> In my true heart, I knew I was an alcoholic from the very beginning. Um, I was married to an active alcoholic, and I really had this sense of like, why couldn't he just stop? I really thought it was a willpower thing, and it actually wasn't until I got sober that the idea that it was a disease really started to click into place for me because I said, well, wait a second, like, this doesn't make any sense. I have massive willpower. I, you know, I employ my willpower across many different fronts. And and in this case, it doesn't apply. And when I started 
to really thinking about how I couldn't stop. Once I started, I couldn't stop. It didn't matter. And the fact that I had blackouts and people that I knew who were social drinkers and not alcoholics never had blackouts and they could stop at any time and all this stuff that I did that just didn't make any sense. And I when you know, let's let's talk about the stigma a little more. I mean, I, I had written down that Russell Brand wrote this very elegant piece about his addiction and recovery for theguardian.com dot com in two thousand thirteen and in it he says can there be any other disease but addiction that renders its victims so unappealing? And it's true because we we do things that are um, can can cause a lot of wreckage. And so, yeah. one, one question I have about the role of stigma is that it played in Julie's story. I mean, it it felt to me like it took many forms. I mean, she was hiding her drinking. She was running away from the car. It seemed like the police department had this apparent unwillingness to search for her. I mean, can you talk about the different ways that the stigma impacted Julie? Absolutely. Uh, And in Julie's story, too, we really should bring up the fact that she had already had three DUIs, and she had had them within two years so she was known um, with the Prince William Police Department, and you know mm-hmm. Jerry, uh, we go we go in the film, we weave that that backstory in the film where Jerry really brings up the fact that she, Julie had a very good lawyer, and that lawyer kept going to court and knocking down you know what would have been a tougher sentence on Julie to a minimal sentence. And so I think in Julie's mind, because she kept having to go to court and she kept having to sort of face the music and then maybe not facing the music as hard as she could have or should have, because she really, I know at one point she went and she did residential treatment. She had an electronic monitor on her, too, at the home. Uh, And she was, you know, going to meetings and she was doing everything she could to get sober. But she could really not put more than a few months of sobriety together. So I think for Julie, this stigma and this shame and and every uh, everything that was swirling around her, you know, that was telling her that she couldn't get better, and and she, Mm. you know, was trying so hard. In fact. When she met Mary, that had been, we say this in the film, Jerry says it, it really was a turn for her. Mary was there for her and could support her, and we all know now that I'm sure they were connecting on such a level, too, with Mary's recovery and Julie's recovery, that they were connecting on that level together. And so I think this stigma that kept following Julie was an internal one, first of all, that shame and the stigma that she had on herself. But then there was the external one. When when Julie left the scene and wandered away, when those when the police showed up, a woman named Donna, who you see in the film, who was an eyewitness to everything, an eyewitness to, you know, Julie getting out of the car and, and running away into the darkness, you know, Donna said when those police came, they they really didn't put much effort in trying to find her and they knew who she was and you know they drove up and down the street the other thing is this was a very very cold night it was in december mid-december 
it was brutally cold. I think we all, for many people who have been living in uh, the Northeast this year and the Midwest, can can feel this cold. It was also very dark. It was one of those, um, one of the shortest days of the year. And when she fled, she had no coat, no purse, no. uh, She didn't have her car keys. She didn't have her ID on her. I mean, this obviously was a woman in trouble. And yet the police were just like, eh, at least that's the way the eyewitness painted it. Then when you flash forward to they finally pushed so hard. Jerry had been going down to the police station, and he had been asking. You know, they had filed a missing persons report. He had been asking, has anyone, you know, heard anything? He was really getting the runaround. And they pressed and pressed and pressed. And when they finally got the local news media to put out a story on Julie, what came out was this woman was wanted, felony, Mm -hmm. leaving the scene. And then came an outpouring of negative online. These people were putting out the most horrendous comments, and we've all seen that, Um, but there were just awful, awful comments about Julie, including some of her neighbors. You could see how personal it was. So this was really, uh, in my mind, where the stigma was hitting the hardest, that there were just people out there who had such an – their minds were made up. Uh, They had decided that Julie was a criminal. She, You know, people were saying things she deserved it. Deserved it, yeah. Yeah. We uh, we tried to go after the police, the uh, Prince William police, during the making of the film. We, um, you know, tried to get an interview with them. We tried to talk with them. Uh, The only thing they would do is issue a statement saying that, you know, Julie did not fit the criteria for an endangered adult, missing endangered adult. And we could not believe this, that there, you know, how could you say that? (laughs) That made absolutely no sense to me. You know, I love the fact that when we talk about being drunk, we say we're out of our mind. And yet, somebody who is an Alzheimer patient who wanders away from a car and is literally out of their mind, the police will go after them. And here, she is out of her mind, and it doesn't fit the criteria. That was so tragic and so striking. I mean, she was just—it was like she was discarded, you know. That that, and that that at some point, somebody in the film says, "I mean, I think it might have been Mary. Like, this, she's a human being. We're talking about a human being here, and that somehow being an an alcoholic, the implication is that you're subhuman on some level, and it's that's such a tragedy and such a poignant part of the story, and it emphasizes the stigma." I, along the lines of this, this stigma to a degree, I mean, I have a question that was in my mind the entire time I was watching the film. I was thinking, um, you know, as a filmmaker, when you approached Jerry and her friends and family, what was their reception to you telling them that you were doing this film? Were they eager to tell her story and help in the cause and the mission? Were, they, were there reservations? What was their response? Yeah, it was that was really um wow. When when I think back to it, there was like this divine spark that was there in this beginning from the very beginning with all of this. When I read that story about Julie, it was in such early days, I knew not to touch base with them. I you know, I I said I'm going to give them some time to grieve. So I actually didn't reach out to them for about 4 weeks or so. 
because I just knew in my heart that that was the wrong time to do it. And it was really hard to find Mary George, first and foremost, because that was a common name, and there were many, many Mary Georges. And I had probably gone through 12 of them before I finally found Mary. And she tells this amazing story whenever we're on panels together, when we've had live screening events, that she had a phone in her house that was really there for emergencies only because her mom had been living with her, her elderly mom at the time. And she said that she never picked up that phone because the only people who would call on that line were telemarketers. And she said something just in her heart at that moment said, answer that phone. And I was wow. on the other end saying, you know, is this, wow. is this Mary George? You know, Mary George, are you friends with Julie Kroll? And so it started with that conversation. And I basically just told her what I wanted to do, how upset I had been personally at reading that story. And I had watched the subsequent local news stories. And I had said, you know, how much I had really felt like Julie's story was a bigger story. It was a story that was almost an every woman's story. And it was speaking to a larger context. And I think it was saying all of that i i also had wanted to really wanted to help right that wrong with the prince william police at the time jerry and mary and donna and everybody who was surrounded in that story had felt like it was mishandled and they knew mm-hmm. that i really wanted to take that on so mary helped to arrange the meeting with jerry and jerry was uh, you know i i went over and i i met with him and mary and it was just a lovely, lovely conversation. And I, I think the sincerity that they knew I had in my heart, uh, they just knew that, you know, that's I, I wasn't going to exploit anything, I wa- you know, that this was going to be their story, that we were going to be partners in this together. And, uh, and I think from there, you know, we all decided very early on. But I will tell you that it was Julie's parents, uh, quite frankly, that was that was a tough one. I got to meet her mm. stepfather. I never met her mother. Julie was very close to her mother. Um, from what I understand, they had an extraordinarily close relationship. But her parents didn't want to participate in the film. I'm I'm not even sure if they've ever seen the film. I know that Jerry's uh, brother has seen the film. He came to a, a screening that we had and, and actually stood up in the audience and, and thanked us all for making the film. So, you know, it's been mm. a mixed mixed bag about the reaction to participate. Yeah. What about what about the reaction from, from people who have seen the film? What are some things that you commonly hear? You've mentioned a few of them, but... Uh, some of the reaction, oh, we've got wonderful reaction. And, I, you know, the reaction that always just completely blows my mind is is the stories that people will tell me uh, about how seeing the film has given them a different perspective. And this has been everything from I had a, a young woman in recovery who told me that she gave it to her parents. 
And her par- you know, in giving the film to her parents, her parents finally understood what she was going through. Or I've wow. had, I, I even had my own brother. We we had a screening out in Los Angeles. My brother came down from San Francisco, brought his daughter down. He said, "I will never look at another woman again." Um, you know, who's drinking too much and without understanding and seeing that, having seen this film, without un- having the, pers- um, the perspective that I do now. So it really has run the gamut of men and women. And, and so, but I will say that the women who are at the tipping point, the women who have that knowledge in their hearts that they have a problem i've had my own my own friend from the seventh grade oh a woman that i adore so much and i've always known that she's had a drinking problem and she's a binge drinker and one of the one of these women who you know she can't turn it off and when we are when we see each other it's such a joyful celebratory moment that inevitably it would descend into a lot of drinking uh, on her part and so it allowed me to have that conversation with her. She saw lipstick and liquor, broke down and cried, and she said to me, which I couldn't believe, she said, you know, Lori, it's the one thing that my husband can't control. And so I I hear these things, these comments, where I think, again, lipstick and liquor becomes this portal. And you all know this from when you, uh, you know, have, have your own, times together with other women who are in recovery and that sort of that ability that you have to open your hearts, open your minds, and just open up about your personal journeys and 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 what you're learning and discovering. And I think Lipstick and Liquor is in its own little way. I like to say it's kind of its own little AA meeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's it's so great. It's It's what we experience every week here on the show with with each other and our guests, and then we sure hope with all of our listeners who are out there on their own um, stages of their recovery journeys, it's we're, we're so happy to have to be able to add you and lipstick and liquor to the to the conversation. Absolutely. Oh. Well, thank so you we're so kind of, much. We're rounding out the hour, and and usually, so the, it always goes so fast. Um, and what we like to do is is to give everybody sort of one last chance to, you know, leave us with a closing thought. So I'll, I'll start with Lori as our guest of honor and then Ellie. Well, thank you again so much. Like I said, this is this is such a pleasure, and this is such a, a reinforcement of what I set out to do when we started this crazy thing called Lipstick and Liquor, and uh, just being able to, to share Julie's story. You know, I, I can't help thinking that her death did not end in the tragedy. Yes, it was a terrible tragedy for her family and her friends, uh, but her her life story, her memory, it lives on. And every single time we do something like this, we have a screening or or we we have any time to share this story, Julie's story, I can't help thinking she's just smiling up there. You know, she just, mm. she uh, is, is sharing more than she ever could possibly know in her lifetime. It's such an inspiration, all of these women are. And I, I hope folks will get a chance to to pay her forward. You know, not for me. Mm-hmm. I I really made this film because I wanted 
her story out there and Mary's story and Emily and Jody's and Haley's. And so I hope people will share this story with others. That's so beautiful, Lori. Absolutely. I'll just echo um, those sentiments. I mean, I was so moved by Julie's story and all all the women that were so bravely and, and with such heart and honesty and grace came forward and, and shared their experiences. And I'm, I just want to tell you on a personal level how grateful I am that you created this film because, you know, there there are new powerful mediums for us to get out there and talk about women and drinking and alcoholism and just to be able to have some kind of a platform to start keep this conversation going. It's heartening to see how much progress has been made. I've been blogging and been in the recovery world since 2008 and um, wow we've made some some really great strides but films like lipstick and liquor go a long way towards helping educate people and for people listening out there i mean it's a great film not only for people who are struggling with drinking or people in recovery but also for families and loved ones and friends to help get a get a better grasp of what alcoholism is what it looks like and that there is hope in recovery through the stories of those women um and, and uh, so thank you so much for creating this film, and, and um, I, I recommend it to a lot of people, and I think the idea that you could share it, if somebody's had this experience and is in recovery and they're trying to help other people understand what it's like, it's just a fantastic film to share. So thank you very much. It's, it's been a, oh, been a you're privilege welcome. and an honor to talk say- to you today. Thank you so much. I did want to say it is available uh, on Amazon. Uh, our website, lipstickandliquor.com, uh, it shows all different ways in which you can get it. And uh, and we also have a Facebook page, too. Awesome. That's great. So thank you, Lori Butterfield, for being with us tonight. The film is called Lipstick and Liquor, Secrets in the Suburbs. That website, again, is www.lipstickandliquor.com. The webpage also has a resources link with with some great information about the research into the science of addiction and a variety of recovery-related reading material. And before we go, I'd just like to say that I feel a great debt of gratitude for the people like Julie who have gone before us and in whose struggles with addiction and recovery. We see and feel our own struggles and their lives and stories can be a source of inspiration to us to maintain our sobriety for another day. So in closing, I'd like to read a poem by Mel Ash called We Recover on the Bones of Others and offer this show in memory of Julie Kroll. In the words of her friend Mary, Julie was a somebody. We recover on the bones of others. If you are here to read this, think of those who aren't. Pray for them. Good thoughts for those who lost their minds, love, and years to compulsion, addiction, and fears. Think of their great sacrifice. We recover on the bones of others. Wrap your loving thoughts around them, alone, no more. If you are here and recovering your original, shining, true self, a moment of silence for those driven mad by the voices and screams of disease-driven dreams. We walk from night to day on a path made of the bones of others. Hold them tightly in the warm arms of your spirit, cold no more. If you are here and attaining freedom, a thousand bows for those who didn't reach this shore and drowned in a sea of despair, suffering no more. We walk in freedom past cages made from the bones of others 
they hand us the keys of desperation. Quench their burning thirst with the tears of your soul. Calm their cravings. Still their minds. Grant them the peace in the dark and lonely places below and above the ground. Fill the gaping holes left by their deaths with the immensity of your love. Remember them as you sleep. Remember them as you wake. Only a thought is the difference between you and the bones of others. Thank you, Lori and Ellie. And as we close the show tonight... I know, and I'm this cold, and I'm now I'm choked up. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> how how inelegant of me. But as we close the show tonight, we'd like to direct you to our parent organization, ShiningStrong.org. There you will find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now, and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. Visit the Bubble Hour's website at thebubblehour.com to find a link to many recovery resources, including Jean's blog, Unpickled, Mm -hmm. and our email address, thebubblehour at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Please let us know your feedback about tonight's show and any other topic suggestions. We thank all of you for listening to the Bubble Hour and hope you all have a great evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Lori. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.